The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Good morning. This is Eric Savitz. I'm associate editor of Barron's. This is Tech Trader on Barron's Live. Uh, for those of you who are live, we're not doing video today uh, due to some technical issues, but we should have a fantastic conversation. I am very excited to have with me today Paul Wick, who is head of uh, the Seligman Technology Group. Paul has been running uh, the, the Columbia Seligman Tech Fund for a very long time. Uh, how long, Paul, have you been running this fund? Uh, 32 and one quarter years. <laughs> I like the one quarter added to the, the total. <laughs> that, that's, um, that's gotta make you the longest, uh, lasting tech fund manager, like on earth, I would think. Right. I, I think that's correct. I think that's a testament to me not wanting to, to, uh, update my resume. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. And of course we've known each other for a long time. I am very happy to have you with me today. And, um, you know, one thing I want to start off with is you have kind of a new, uh, a new, you've added a new piece to your portfolio. You, you, you do run a couple of funds. You run the flagship tech fund there and, and a couple of other things. Uh, but you also just started in, um, a semiconductor um, ETF, which is a new venture. Uh, tell people a little bit about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, we we thought um, an actively managed semiconductor ETF made a lot of sense. Uh, the the other ETFs in the market are uh, index weighted and more uh, passive vehicles, and we've had. Um, a really strong track record over the years with mid-sized companies that have been acquired by larger companies. And uh, that, that strategy has been very successful for us. And we thought that we could continue it um, with a dedicated semiconductor fund. And we thought, um, we thought an ETF was uh, a great approach to doing so. Uh, you know, people can trade in it during the day. They don't have to trade, uh, you know, at the and get the, the closing price. And the uh, semiconductor industry fundamentals are strong and valuations are reasonable, certainly a lot more reasonable than uh, other parts of technology and even relative to the broad market. And the chip industry is still consolidating. We've had uh, uh, every year uh, more and more public companies disappear. Just uh, in the last few months, we had, uh, for example, uh, Tower Semiconductor is in the process of getting acquired by Intel. So uh, there's more more consolidation to come, and and we're optimistic that uh, even. You know, despite the current rocky market sentiment, uh, we're optimistic that the long-term future for the semi-ETF is going to be a, a very good one. And and you can, uh, I presume that in that fund, you can also own um, related businesses, so semiconductor equipment or 
uh, EDA, like design software, chip design software companies, which I know you've liked at some points in the past, or um, how far afield can you go beyond core semis? Well, 80% of the fund has to be in core semiconductors and semiconductor capital equipment. And the remaining 20% of the fund can be in adjacent companies, typically in the systems area, uh, companies that uh, um, design some of their own chips uh, for inclusion in their system products. So potentially companies like an Alphabet or an Apple or Cisco, for example. There's the, the whole sector has been quite volatile over the last, like, let's call it year or so. And you've had some cross currents, right? We've had uh, supply shortages that have affected, well, everyone at some level. Um, you've had uh, during the during the, the the pandemic period, huge surge in demand for PCs and mobile phones and other kinds of devices. And it feels like at the moment, the sentiment, though, has turned a little uh, more bearish uh, on the, uh, overall in the market about semiconductor stocks. What's changed the sentiment and what do you think people are, where's your view different than the this sort of growing concern? Yeah, I think there are a few things. One is there's a a natural tendency to think that anything that benefited from the pandemic is going to um, ebb as the pandemic ends. And certainly, as you mentioned, um, there was a lot of spending on technology products. Um, so so there's that, that fear as well. And then, of course, there's this recession fear that yep. has has uh, uh, come to the fore with uh, the, the uh, increase in energy prices, uh, the disruption in Europe. People are worried about a European, a looming re, a European recession and, and perhaps that spreading out around the world. Um, I think more recently, people are concerned that, oh, Micron had good results last week and the stock sold off, and that's bearish. And analog devices up to their long-term forecast this morning, hmm. and the stock is down, so that's bearish. So, I mean, that's kind of, I think that's where, where things are at. Um, you know, from my standpoint, um, I tend to be more concerned when companies lower their forecast and the stock goes down. <laughs> Uh, when companies are raising their forecast and the stock goes down, um, a lot of times I'm thinking, gee, the, the people who are making those decisions and selling are not the sharpest tools in the shed. <laughs> well, one of the things that's going on, right, I think, is um, there seems to be a sense of, for example, that PC demand which was extremely robust during uh, the pandemic, as we all know, is slowing down. And you've had, for example, uh, you know, you've had uh, people getting a little more cautious on uh, PC stocks. We'll come back to PC stocks in a bit, but like stocks like HP and Dell. And this, the, the, the concern seems to be we're going to go from 
uh, at some point, what has been a very tight supply market is going to enter like a period of access. And that's always, you know, with a with a company like Micron, which is generally tra- treated like a commodity business, um, whenever there's concern about uh, oversupply, you know, the, the stock sells off. And do you think that that are people too bearish about uh, PC demand or slowing PC demand? How do you think about that dynamic? There's, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I and I I can't predict infallibly that uh, everything is going to be hunky dory because we we're in an uncertain time with rising inflation, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, etc. But um, PC demand has remained pretty uh, resilient. And people have been making this call that the PC market is going to um, revert back to pre-COVID levels for a while. Um, This call has been made since last summer. And to this point, there really hasn't been much evidence to support it. There hasn't been really been any, much of anything to corroborate it other than uh, that consumer low-end so-called Chromebook demand has, has moderated somewhat, so that has declined. But at the same time, um, enterprise demand for, especially for desktops and uh, higher-end notebooks has been picking up because employees are returning to the office. And, you know, from the standpoint of Dell or Hewlett-Packard, they would much rather sell a $1,200, $1,100 fully-featured desktop than a $450 Chromebook. Uh, So our sense is that uh, the PC market is faring better than than the perception, which is that it's death warmed over. (laughs) Um, I'd also point out that the PC market only accounts for 20% of semiconductor industry revenues. This is very different from the from where we were in the 1990s, when uh, PCs were 60% uh, or more of the semiconductor industry, and the industry was a lot more cyclical then. Now that we have smartphones as the biggest category, and data centers as the second biggest category. Uh, plus everything we've had in automotive, automotive and consumer electronics, wearables, uh, industrial technology, et cetera. Um, the, the chip industry is much more diverse and stable. We don't have the huge swings um, in pricing, in CapEx, and in revenues that we had 30 years ago. Now, unfortunately... A lot of investors um, are, are so enamored with old history that they have a hard time reorienting themselves to change. And um, 
you can't be a slave to history because things do change and those changes are really important. Yeah, and you know, you can see that, I think, um, I wrote a little bit about this in, in, um, in Barron's over the weekend. Uh, you can see this in Micron's valuation, right? Where they, the, it's trades that have, as you well know, a very low multiple of, of earnings or sales or any other multiple you want to use to measure them. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's about as cheap a stock as uh, on, on, from a statistical basis, as you, as you can imagine. And I, I think it's right. It's trading at like six or seven times earnings and maybe two times sales. And, um, and it's, uh, it seems to have a pretty positive outlook, but it, you know, trades like, um, I don't know, like they sell wheat or something like it, it, it trades like a commodity and, I, so let maybe let's maybe that's a a, a a good place to hear how you think about Micron. We've talked about this, and um, you've been you've been pretty optimistic about the stock for a while. What's your take on Micron, and where do you think it goes from here? Well, last week when they reported, um, they they forecasted that their gross margins would go up one percent in the May quarter to 48%. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that their NAND business is going from being discrete products to, um, uh, to you know, a little more of a system product, SSD. Um, and the margins on, on uh, solid state drives, SSDs, are mm -hmm. higher than for discrete flash. Um, you know, I think pricing has remained pretty stable. Um, in spite of what people may be saying, NAND prices have actually ticked up because of the uh, contamination at the Kioxia Western Digital factories. Um, yep. And um, there hasn't been a huge surge of capacity added either. So, I mean, looking at DRAM pricing, DRAM pricing has remained pretty stable. And then Micron's cost basis um, has been, they've made steady strides. So um, on DRAM, their one alpha node is ramping steadily. And they are now, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing. Micron is now the, the global leader in process technology for both DRAM and Flash, because they're mm -hmm. ramping the 176 layer flash product now, uh, and they're getting pretty good yields on it. And, uh, you know, for the last 30 years, Samsung has been the process leader of the memory industry. And it's big news that Micron has, has gradually moved ahead of Samsung in process leadership. Now, Eric, I just want to mention one other thing that's really important for Micron and for the chip industry, mm -hmm. and that is that, you know, and I've talked about this before, but this this whole issue of Moore's law slowing is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, it's just getting harder and harder to shrink semiconductors because um, the dimensions of these feature sizes 
has gotten to the point where they're literally like seven or eight atoms thick. And um, if, <laughs> if you take away uh, one or two more atoms, um, all sorts of um, unpredictable things start to happen. Um, you know, you get uh, uh, shorts and uh, uh, current issues, and none of those are good for a, a reliable semiconductor device. So um, in the past, uh, the chip industry would, on, on an annual basis was able to reduce costs by doing these shrinks, and they would get 25 30% more dye per wafer from doing those shrinks. And they could be done relatively inexpensively by moving to the next generation lithography tool from someone like ASM lithography or Nikon. But in the last seven or eight years, the industry has shrunk things to such a small size that the incremental gains are getting harder and harder to come by. And so a shrink nowadays, like like Micron's one alpha node, um, that only gives you like 9% more dye per wafer. And those shrinks take longer and longer to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so as a result, it's getting more expensive to add leading edge capacity. And uh, in, instead of just adding, uh, you know, one new lithography tool, you have to you have to to accommodate r- rising demand. You have to put in a whole new line, and that whole new line in a factory cost will cost like a billion dollars or more. So capacity has gotten expensive. It's harder to add. And this is one of the reasons why we've had the chip shortage, um, because capacity is slow to come online and mm-hmm. demand has remained uh, resilient uh, throughout the, the tech industry. And just for semiconductors in general, let's keep in mind um, that you know we, we have this 5G handset cycle underway, so the number of 5G phones this year is going to double. Uh, 5G phones have more... Uh, flash content and more DRAM content, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100% more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have everything that's happening in cars with with um, uh, the move to electric vehicles and uh, different degrees of self-driving autonomy, you know, all these cameras and radar sensors and the like, all these touch screens in cars. Um, so the semiconductor content in autos is going up dramatically. And then, of course, we've got um, very strong spending at the, the hyperscale data centers, you know, whether it's Facebook, uh, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Google. They're all spending significantly more money um, over the next uh, couple of years, and that's translating into strong demand for um, uh, networking equipment and servers and, uh, and other kinds of devices that, that consume a lot of semiconductors. So the, the demand back, backdrop is not just cyclical, but we have sec, secular factors here that are growing uh, very strongly um, 
and, and are exerting a positive influence on the whole industry. Yeah, that's uh, that's super helpful. And, you know, I want to uh, one thing I'd add to that is uh, when Micron reported last week, one of the things there they talked about was uh, like automotive. They think automotive will be the biggest driver for their business for years to come. And part of it is, you know, you talk about higher semiconductor, higher memory content per phone for for 5G phones for for EVs and then for autonomous cars it's like it's it's hugely more right it's it can be you know five times more content than it or more or 10 to 15 times more content from in a chip uh, uh in terms of chips from like a conventional you know combustion engine type of car and that's and they don't and what's so interesting about that i think is that um they get huge increase in demand without any real increase in the size of the auto market, right? They're not they're not expecting some surge in auto production. They just think there's more chips per car. Uh, no, in fact, uh, auto production in the first quarter uh, really sank quite a bit. I, right. I looked at a chart in terms of global units. We're back to where we were in the 1980s. Oh my. <laughs> So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of things that happened in the first quarter in terms of disruptions with, uh, with, with COVID. And uh, fortunately, those pandemic-related issues seem to be easing throughout the world. And uh, that should be a tailwind for auto production um, in, in the second and third quarters. And I think we're going to see a very a very good uh, backdrop in terms of um, higher units leading to um, even more significant growth in revenues for a lot of these companies. Okay. So I want to do, um, uh, <laughs> I wish we had hours to go here, but we, I'm going to run through a bunch of stuff and we're going to try and make it fast. Um, I do want to sure. just, before we leave um, this area, I do want to touch just briefly on PCs because we touched on HP and Dell um, and I, I know that um, that's an area that you find interesting. Talk for a moment about how you feel about the, the PC stocks. Yeah, well, we've been big fans of Hewlett Packard uh, and CEO Enrique Lores has executed extremely well. Um, we, we have a, uh, uh, not only have PCs been strong during the pandemic, but Right now, we have this, this return to work, which is stimulating demand for office printers. Um, uh, of course, consumables for office printers are growing, and uh, desktops and other commercial PCs are growing as well. So as a result, Hewlett-Packard, uh, their PC business is staying, is staying flattish despite the drop-off in the consumer market. And the printing business is recovering. The company has been uh, repurchasing a significant amount of its shares. Uh, they've been buying back uh, the last few years 15% of their shares uh, per year. Now, per that, year. that's going to slow. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if you look at it in the most recent year, the share count dropped, uh, I think, 14.9%. Now, going forward, um, it's looking like about um, they're, they're going to keep spending $4 billion per year repurchasing their stock. 
Um, that works out to about 10% share count reduction per year, which is just a, a dramatic number that I think people lose sight of. Um, so just keep in mind, the market cap of the company is $38 billion, and they're buying back $4 billion a year, and they're paying a dividend, and yep. they just bought this, they're buying this company, Poly, which is the old Plantronics plus Polycom, um, which should be a, not only financially accretive by 20 cents next year, going to 50 cents in a few years, but it should be meaningfully additive to the company's long-term growth because uh, demand for headsets uh, and video conferencing equipment um, is really strong. And I think it's going to remain strong for a number of years. And they got Poly for a great price. So just look, thinking about it, um, you know, we think Hewlett-Packard uh, earns $4.28 this fiscal year in uh, mm -hmm. April, uh, $4.55 easily next year or more and $5 the year after. And the stock is 36. And that share count keeps going down quarter after quarter. So, you know, it's it's not a sexy business, but it's um, it's better than than people give it credit for. So I want to I want to um, jump to another area, you know, we were talking about the, uh, the, the, the growth and the opportunity and the in the cloud, and I know that you have uh, you've been bullish on some of the optical networking stocks that benefit from that build out. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so if if you look at uh, companies like uh, Sienna um, and and some of their suppliers, Lumentum, um, Sienna, the last few quarters, their bookings have been extremely strong. Their backlog in the most recent quarter increased by a billion dollars uh, sequentially. So you think about it, you know, what's driving this? It's, um, it's 5G backhaul, and uh, in particular, it's 400 gig speeds in the data center, and, uh, um, and data center to data center over um, shorter distances, you know, say less than 30 miles. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're, we're positively inclined on a number of these companies. Uh, we, we own Sienna. Uh, we're particularly bullish on uh, Lumentum. Uh, Lumentum sells uh, lasers and optical components that go into a, a wide range of these types of of uh, network connectivity products, and uh, their demand outlook is also very strong. And of course, they are buying a supplier called Neophotonics, NPTN, mm -hmm. and, and that transaction should close this year, uh, I think this summer, probably. And uh, that's a meaningfully accretive transaction. So. We're, we're thinking that ne uh, that um, Lumentum's earnings in in the uh, June 2023 fiscal year could be in the seven dollar and fifty cents to eight dollars a share ballpark, uh, which of course makes 
Lumentum an incredibly inexpensive stock. Um, the stock is $91.64. And, and, um, and, and the company is buying back its shares pretty aggressively right now. And I, and I would um, I'd highlight that uh, a lot of our companies in, in our fund um, are actually buying back their stock aggressively. In contrast to some other parts of technology where uh, share count just keeps growing. If you look at some of the internet companies, software companies, uh, a lot of these are profligate companies that are doling out lots of RSUs and options to employees and their share count just keeps ballooning. Uh, that's not the case with companies like Lumentum and Lamb Research and Hewlett Packard. So um, a, a couple of questions that I want to mention that um, we've gotten from listeners. One, which I think is a good one, is um, how do you feel about Intel? Uh, you know, Intel, of course, uh, you know, we talked about building the capacity. They're, they're spending tens of billions of dollars to add new plants, um, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, but it's going to be a while, to your point, on how long it takes before we see uh, that uh, uh, that payoff uh, with you know plants going online. Meanwhile, they're you know they they've kind of stopped buying back stock and they're 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 not really making money at the moment. So how do you feel about Intel? You know, kind of this iconic name that's going through this major transition of their business. Yeah, well, for one, one of the reasons Intel's been under pressure is because um, they fell behind in process technology. And um, since Pat Gelsinger arrived, uh, the company's roadmap has firmed up. Mm -hmm. So um, they have a, a new family of client processors called Alder Lake. And uh, the Alder Lake processors are very competitive with AMDs. In fact, they are acknowledged by review reviewers to be better products than, than AMDs. So Intel has stopped seeding market share in the client market. Uh, you know, they, they just developed a, uh, their first discrete graphics product mm -hmm. uh, called ARC which is in the process of rolling out. Um, they have um, a, a GPU AI product um, that uh, the name is uh, oh, Ponte Vecchio. That's an incredibly complicated product that has got also gotten exceptionally good reviews and is very competitive with um, NVIDIA's top of the line uh, DGX system. This is for artificial, really like uh, like artificial intelligence applications, right? Exactly, um, and then of course uh, the Sapphire Rapids uh, next generation server CPU is uh, is starting to ramp this quarter. So Intel feels like it's it's back on track. Um, the move to add Foundry as a way to uh, lengthen their depreciation cycles, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, if they if they get government help and they're able to build out these new factories around the world, 
um, they'll need that that capacity for themselves anyways. Um, and if the government ends up giving them a handout, both here and in Europe, that's that's not a bad outcome. And if they get new com- new uh, customers, um, I you know I think that's that's an added bonus to them, and they'll be able to depreciate that plant and equipment over a longer period of time than they do today. One thing to keep in mind, Eric, is that Intel's depreciation schedule for new chip making equipment is like four years. And as contrasted with Taiwan Semiconductor, which I believe is seven or eight years. So uh, that's an important element uh, in in the calculus here. Uh, One other thing to keep in mind is just the geopolitical situation. And the United States and Europe used to be 80% of the world's semiconductor manufacturing output. And over the last few decades, that has reversed. And uh, the U.S. and Europe, I think, are something like 20 or 25% of global, uh, global semiconductor manufacturing. Um, if something were to happen between China and Taiwan, that that could be extremely disruptive to um, the electronics industry globally. Um, I, I think the value of Intel's factories uh, would be <laughs> readily apparent mm-hmm. to everyone, given that they're in places like Ireland, Israel, um, and, um, and and the United States, and soon Ohio. Right. Which, which, of course, is part of the United States. But, but that's like a, that is their one of their newest uh, ventures. Right. Is building uh, fabs in Ohio. You know, the other thing, Eric, about Intel that just jumps out at me is if you look at uh, Intel relative to AMD, AMD doesn't have any of their own chip making factories. They spun that off a long time ago and created global founders. But AMD now is mostly reliant on Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, if China invaded Taiwan, uh, AMD would be in a ton of trouble. Um, and AMD has a, has a value of $170 billion right now. Intel has a value of $190-something billion. And you think about everything that Intel has, uh, you know, they have Mobileye for uh, for camera sensor systems for automobiles. Um, right, which is and they've got all these factories all over the world, and those factories are worth a lot. And yet the valuation of, of Intel is just modestly greater than AMD. And, of course, Intel's sales are much bigger than, than AMD. So there's a big valuation disparity here. And, and uh, I think one could argue that Intel is – meaningfully undervalued. Yeah, you know, the, you mentioned Mobileye, which of course is going to go public this year. And, um, you know, some of the estimates on the valuation of Mobileye are in the $50, 60000000000 billion range. So you're talking like maybe a third of Intel's value, um, which is kind of astonishing. So it's like if you set, if you back out that, like it even looks cheaper still, uh, which I think is interesting. That's right. So that let me, let me be, ask uh, you one other uh one other hot kind of like, you know, hot button, uh, what has been a hot button uh, semiconductor stock is the one 
that I, I believe now has the largest market cap, um, which is NVIDIA. And, you know, NVIDIA has been a fast grower. They have, you know, expanded into new markets and their market cap has soared. And it, it's probably one of the more expensive semiconductor stocks statistically. Are you a, an NVIDIA fan or is it just too pricey for you? Uh, the latter. Um, we had owned NVIDIA a few years ago and we sold it sold it too early in its uh, ascendance. Um, and it's a great company, um, incredibly well run, um, capitalized on, on the crypto mining craze as well as on the movement in uh, to, to do artificial intelligence processing on graphics graphics chips, yep. um, but the the valuation certainly is rich, and uh, I mean we're we're looking at uh, so a six hundred fifty billion dollar market value on uh, let's see twenty seven billion in trailing revenues. I mean that's like twenty four times revenues. Yeah, um, that's an awful lot to pay. Yeah, that's for. that's up there in cloud software territory. It is. So I'll, we'll let someone else be the hero on that one. Okay. Um, a couple of other quick ones. One, um, somebody's asking of uh, if you look at uh, the, the the mega caps, and uh, so you were talking. Let's call it. Let's say the big five, typical five big ones: Amazon, Apple, Google. Meta, Microsoft. Would you own any of those? We own Microsoft, and we own Google, and we own Apple, and all three of those have been core positions for a long, long time. And um, and I'd imagine they, you know, barring a huge uh, change in fundamentals or a or an explosion in the valuation. Um, you know, are, are, I would I would imagine that they will remain core positions. We're not as enthused about um, Meta trying to reinvent the company in the face of slowing user growth. We're not convinced that the metaverse is going to be a success. Um, I think there's a reasonable chance that it's an abject failure. Um, company is spending a huge amount of money. Um, so I just think it's there's a lot of risk there, and and uh, I'm glad we're not involved in it. Um, Amazon, um, the the company's cash generation and P and L uh, have not been. Um, it really don't don't excite me. Uh, their e-commerce business is slowing significantly. Um, you know they were a, a pandemic beneficiary. And that is reversed strongly this year. Uh, e-commerce has has really weakened considerably. Uh, you know, maybe with the exception of you know someone like eBay. Um, but uh, you know, we're we're not a fan of Amazon. So I want to do. Uh, we're going to go as we're we're like way over here. But I do want to give you a chance to talk about a stock that I uh, no one is going to expect to hear from you. You 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 also do some. Uh, some investing in biotech, where you've generally been pretty bearish. 
Um, but you've dug up a little biotech name that uh, you think is very cheap and where you are a very large investor. Why don't you tell people about, um, uh, well, you know which company I'm talking about. Tell, tell people about your favorite biotech stock. Sure. Well, the only biotech stock we own is in our global tech and tech and information funds. It's a little local company called Iger Biopharma. And this is a ticker is uh, what's the ticker on that for people who want to look it up? E-I-G-R. I think it's named after the mountain in Switzerland. Oh, the Iger. Um, right. Okay. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I became aware of this company because during the pandemic, uh, you know, everyone was trying to become a an expert <laughs> on uh, on vaccines and therapeutics and COVID and and everything that was going to, you know, that was relevant to the to the pandemic. And I became aware of this local company Iger that was running a trial at Stanford. Um, and there were a lot of scientists who were very excited about their drug. It's, um, it's, a, it's a drug called Lambda Interferon, and this was um, uh, the, the company um, g- gained rights to this drug from Bristol Myers a long time ago. And uh, uh, they, they had been trialing this drug for hepatitis D uh, patients. And it, it looked like it was had had strong efficacy. Um, it's a it's a drug that just turns on your innate immune system. So, anyways, I got uh, um, I got intrigued by the company. It had a modest valuation of about three hundred million dollars, and they had um, they had possibly a cure for uh, COVID. And then on top of it, they had a strong pipeline of drugs for hepatitis D. And two years later, um, a, a very large trial finally read out. Um, it took a long time, uh, but they had a 2,000 patient trial in Brazil uh, with, I think, 1,000 people on their drug and 1,000 people on, the, on a placebo. And um, a one-shot dose of uh, their Lambda interferon to high-risk patients, many of whom had who had a breakthrough infection after being vaccinated, resulted in a 60% decrease in mortality and a 50% plus decrease in hospitalization. Um, Now, uh, Iger is going to petition the FDA for emergency use authorization. They have 300,000 doses of this drug on hand. and, uh, you know, right now, the only real strong competition for a COVID therapeutic for high-risk patients is uh, Pfizer's Paxlovid, or the uh, protease inhibitor, which, um, of course, they're, they're cranking up production in a big way. But it, you have to take four pills a day for five days. And there are a lot of patients that can't take it uh, because there's a high degree of drug interaction um, with a host of, of other drugs. And if you think about who is the high-risk population, it's elderly people, people who have diabetes, uh, people who are on chemotherapy. And by and large, those, those patients are taking a lot of drugs. So it's not at all clear that those people will be able to take Paxlovid. And the monoclonal antibody drugs, 
don't work against the BA2 variant, which has now become widespread. So Regeneron, Veer, Lilly, their, their monoclonal antibody drugs are kaput at this point. So there's, there's a need for another therapeutic, um, and I think, I think Iger has it. And it's kind of crazy that, you know, they could sell these, these doses for, I don't know, $500 to $1,000 a piece, assuming the U.S. government moves forward. That's 150 to $300 million in revenue that they could get fairly quickly. And then they have two of these hepatitis D drugs um, that are in phase three trials, one of which could be on the market in calendar 23, this, this drug called lonafarnib. And there's not a lot of competition for hepatitis D. Um, so it just strikes me as an absurdly valued company that um, conceivably could be worth um, dramatically more than than where it's fetching today. Okay. And then uh, you are the largest shareholder, or Seligman is basically, right? You own like yeah, 20%? the uh, Columbia funds, uh, Columbia Seligman funds are the largest shareholder. I think we own almost 21% of the company, so we're, we're believers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. The What is the ticker symbol on your ETF? Someone is asking me. Uh, S-E-M-I, semi. Wow, that was a good get. I'm impressed <laughs> that that was available. I was shocked that it was available. I was like, how is it no one ever took this ticker symbol? That's actually my idea. <laughs> well, it's a good it's a good choice. And with that, I'm going to have to uh, wrap it up. This, is, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Sorry we weren't able to do video today, um, but we will do it again another time. Um, thanks for being with us. And uh, thanks to everyone for being with us today. Please join us for Barron's Live tomorrow. Um, Darren Fonda, who's the crypto and finance editor of Barron's, will be talking to Barry Bannister, who's the chief equity strategist at Stiefel, about the outlook for stocks and cryptocurrencies over the next year and decade to come. Thanks for all of you for being with us. And please be well and stay safe. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.